Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, providing financial support to the community for 55 years, promoting healthier lives and the advancement of future health care in our region, working together for a healthier tomorrow. More at bloomhf.org. And from Estate and Downsizing Specialists, LLC, offering complete turnkey services for estate and downsizing clients, from initial consultation through home cleanout to final real estate and personal property sales. More at edsindiana.com. Welcome to Noon Edition on WFIU. I'm your host, Bob Zaltzberg, along with co-host Sarah Whitmire. And we're pre-recording our show today for to air on, just before Christmas. So we have three guests who are joining us. And we're going to be talking about the year 2022 and what's ahead in the year 2023. Joining us in the studio is our friend Max Jones, the editor of the Terre Haute Tribune Star and the Commercial News in Danville, Illinois. And joining us over Zoom are Nikki Kelly, the author and reporter for the Indiana Capital Chronicle, a new publication, and Erica Heron, state politics and government reporter for the Indianapolis Star. She's a former education reporter who covered state education and trends in policy in the Marion County Schools. Sorry, but you can't call us today with your questions and your comments because we're being pre-recorded. but we will try to have a very lively discussion for you to listen to. So I wanted to, I'm gonna start with Max, but I want Nikki and Erica to answer this too. How is 2022 going to be remembered as a news year? Was it a big, big news year? Nothing happened? What do you say? Well, first of all, thanks for having me again, Bob. I always enjoy this. It's been a while since we've been in the studio, though, as I recall, uh, even though we've we kept on doing this. It's, it's good to be back here. And you know what that does is tells us something about uh, how far we've come here in the last year. When I think about this time last year, we were, you know, think, things look a lot different than what they do right now. Um, you know, the COVID was was still really burning uh, hard. That first four months of this year was was very difficult, and I think we've all kind of forgotten about that. Not forgotten, but it's it's kind of gotten uh, bias. Uh, so it's been a, a big transition year when you think of how bad it was for Joe Biden when the year started, and now it doesn't look quite so bad now for him. Uh, and it's at, and it's true on a lot of different fronts, whether it's politics or public health. Uh, um, so that's what I see as the year. It's, it, it, there have been significant, significant news stories uh, on many levels that have come through, and all of those have led to this sort of roller coaster ride through the year, the transitions from what, what it felt like in January of uh, 2022 till now. Mm-hmm. Nikki Kelly has been a transition year for you. You've switched jobs. So how, how would you how would you characterize the news year? Uh, you know, I would, I would go with kind of a roller coaster. We had, you know, some some big times and, and some not so big times. Uh, I think the biggest thing on the political side was the special legislative session we had that was originally called to, you know, return excess tax dollars back to taxpayers, but became the first state to, you know, redo its abortion law after the Dobbs decision. It was a an incredibly uh, intense two weeks that we're still seeing fallout from. They passed a near total abortion ban and um, you know, the courts have been involved since then. Uh, so and then earlier in the session, I would say the big one is uh, we got rid of gun licensing uh, for firearms. You no longer have to have a, a carry permit. So that so on those two issues, I would say were the ones that really stick out to me for the year. Erica, same question for you. Yeah, um, agree with you know what everyone said so far. For me, I think this year is really the the year of like the time, you know, the year that Indiana made national news for better or worse, uh, quite a few times. You know, we were in the headlines early on in the year for, you know, this kind of anti-CRT legislation, 
um, you know, neutral on Nazism, uh, you know, um, gaffe that kind of put us in the spotlight for what we were trying to do there. Um, we actually became, you know, one of the, the first states to beat back an anti-CRT bill. Um, and then, of course, as Nikki said, later became uh, one of the, the first states to then pass, um, you know, an abortion ban. Um, so a lot of, you know, big national stories, I think, out of Indiana, and that carried through, you know, into the uh, election, you know, just last month, too. Well, Sarah's co-hosting today, and she gets to ask a lot of questions, but I'm going to ask her that same one. How do you think this year is going to come yeah, um, I mean, I thought it was a wild year. But as you were talking about, Max, just COVID at the beginning of the year and just continuing to cover that and um, going up and down with different surges. And then certainly we had a primary in May and another election in November. Local politics here, Bob, has been crazy. Yeah, local politics has been crazy. But I want to also add the fact that I don't believe I've ever had a year where I felt like democracy was as much at risk as I have during 2022 and it's just been a you know that's been that's been something to layer on top of every other thing that we look at in the news so that's been that's been part of the transition in my view um bob i actually wanted to ask you because you're you're primarily our city editor so what about just big issues here bloomington monroe county that that you were that you edited a lot of pieces on that you're following uh you know the one of the biggest stories in Bloomington this year what is really political. I mean, it has to do with the fact that the mayor's not going to run for re-election and people are lining up to yeah. to run. And I'm sure that's you know going to be the case throughout the state. But Mayor John Hamilton had two terms. Um, he's said he's not running. And we already have the deputy mayor, Don Griffin, and a city, the city council president, Susan Sandberg, and a third candidate, Kerry Thompson, who ran our Habitat for Humanity, and now is involved with the uh, Center for Rural Engagement at IU, who's started her campaign early too. So that's that's been big. I mean, there's been a lot of a lot of talk about how much money gets spent in Bloomington. You know, we have a 34 million dollars is going to be spent in new investment for public safety. Convention center has been a big issue. Max has gone through that in Terre Haute with convention centers and a new. Uh, casino. We just have a convention center, but it's we've been working on it for we. I say we. The community's been working on it for 17 years. We did, I think, two shows on it this year, and now it's the city council, the county count, county officials, um, the chamber of commerce all want one thing, and the mayor's office wants something else. So we still haven't gotten a resolution on that. What's going on over there in Terre Haute with? Your well, convention center. You, well, you mentioned, uh, yeah, a couple of big things. And um, be, because I'm in downtown Terre Haute all the time, I, th- I think sometimes I, I even lose a sense of how much it's changed in, in recent years. Uh, the presence of that new convention center has really kind of changed the entire flow, the framework, the appearance, the feel. The whole vibe of the town has changed. Now, there was also a major renovation to Holman Center which is the sports arena. Uh, and uh, so so there's just a lot of uh, new feeling um, uh, going on downtown. There's a lot of been, been a lot of businesses have changed. Um, so that, you know, I, I think people feel pretty good about all of that. Now, we'll, we'll, we'll see over time how well the convention center does. But I think right now there's, there's a lot of hope and a lot of optimism surrounding that. And then, of course, when we have the casino under construction out on I-70, which is not downtown, but uh, a few miles away, uh, e- even though we've still got many months before we start seeing revenue from that operation, the fact is... Is it's going and it's going strong, and Churchill Downs has really invested a lot of money uh, into that operation. Uh, so there's reason to have kind of a, a, a new optimistic feel about some things going on in town, even even though there are other things that, that people are concerned about. Those are the those are the high points. That people are concerned about some of the issues people are concerned about in. Uh, Monroe County and probably everywhere. One is education, obviously, on both the the public education side and higher education. Erica, in terms of of the state of Indiana, what are the key issues that came forward in 2022 in public education? 
I think one of the biggest is um, you know, who this question of like in K-12 anyway, who really has control over what's happening in our schools, right? Is it is it the parents who are sending their kids to our public schools? Is it the you know administrators and the teachers who should be determining what's going on in the classroom? Um, I think that's a question that hasn't quite been settled yet. And I expect us to see um, you know, more conversations about that in the coming year and during this next legislative session. Um, I don't think we're done having that conversation. That's certainly been one of the biggest issues. Funding will always be an issue, um, you know, it comes to education, both K-12 and higher ed. Um, again, I expect to see some changes there. You know, they're looking at maybe other changes to the school funding formula that need to be made. Um, and there's been a lot of question about how well the state has done in funding a public higher education as well. Um, and if there's more that we need to be doing there as the state faces these you know, really big workforce shortage issues, um, is some of that, you know, a result of chronic underfunding of our higher ed system. I think those are two of the biggest. Well, Erica, on, on, in terms of, you know, who really controls the public schools, there were, I mean, there were a lot of parent groups that were going to school board meetings and putting up candidates. How did that play out in the school corporations that you were watching this year? It was really interesting. So um, first to be, uh, you know, a reporter who covered, who pays particular attention to Indianapolis and Marion County schools, this was not an issue that really came to play here. Um, so it, it kind of stopped at the Marion County borders where we saw, you know, in all the surrounding counties, kind of the suburbs were having really, you know, fierce debates over this question. It did not actually come into Indianapolis. Uh, but when you look at the suburban communities that we, you know, cover and um, at the Star, we did see a lot of these, you know, these parent groups, as you were saying, put up candidates um, that you know had really mixed results. There was only one school district that had a, a real sweep of these kind of what we consider more conservative um, and you kind of pro-parent rights candidates um, that was in Hamilton Southeastern. But the other districts where there were slates of kind of candidates running together seeking a majority on their board, um, they didn't. They weren't successful. You know, they maybe got one or two seats, picked up one or two, but didn't actually take over a majority. So, um, not quite the kind of referendum on public education or you know school districts that I think some were expecting to see. And uh, Erica just mentioned that school funding is always going to be an issue. And and Nikki, I know Holcomb has said that that's something he wants to you know wants to see more funding go to schools in this budget session. Um, I'm curious now with the latest news about the budgets and tax revenue, how do you think that's going to play out? Well, I mean, they, the latest forecast showed that they'll have an, a new dollars in the next biennium of $1.6 billion. And that's obviously a big chunk of change. What Republican lawmakers in charge of doing the budget did, though, was immediately say, well, that sounds big, but we have all these requests already. And so the requests are already, you know, outstripping the new money that will come in, uh, partially because of, you know, just low investment in programs over the years, partially because of inflation. Um, but there's no doubting that there's always an increase in K-12 funding. And you know, whether that's enough is in the eye of the beholder, but it, you know, it covers 52% of the budget. It's a massive amount of money. So even just a 2% increase, you know, is, is hundreds of millions of dollars a year. So there will always be a K-12 increase, but I think educators <clears throat> and stakeholders feel like it's not enough to move the needle when we were so, be so far behind, for instance, on things like teacher pay. Um, and that's resulted, you know, in a large teacher shortage. And so, uh, you know, they, they can't do it all in one year, but I, I do think they'll make some progress. Can you make this make sense with $1.6 billion? The, the program where you used to have to then give a rebate to people, they did away with that, correct? No, when, that still exists um, okay. in the law. It, it, it's very it's very complicated. The $1.6 billion is just we have a group of economists and fiscal experts who get together and they look at the next two years and they say here's how much money the state will bring in so that was 1.6 billion more than the last time we did the forecast but um and I, I realize it's a massive amount of money but that's over two years and also you have to remember things like you know we have a 17 billion dollar budget so 
when basic things like you have to provide Medicaid to people, you have to provide basic education funding, that doesn't go as far as you would think it would if you would kind of put it in the context of your own budget. Yeah. One of the local stories in, in Monroe County this year had to do with a, a referendum for the school corporation. And and it, it won by about 70% to 30%. It won overwhelmingly, even though I, I was – I don't know. I had never seen a strategy before, but they said we want this money to pay our teachers more and to pay our staff more. And it won without you know a bunch of new programming or anything like that. It just won to raise these salaries um, like you were talking about that you know teacher, teacher pay. The local community has taken it – taking it into the the referendum. Max, did you have any, any local referendums around your area this year? Oh, my, yes, we did. And, and you know, you mentioned the one uh, that, that was uh, more of the financial basis, the budgeting basis. Uh, uh, Vigo County had one of those in 2021, and it succeeded uh, somewhat surprisingly, but it did succeed. On the other hand, we had another referendum in the spring, which was a facilities referendum. We've got three deteriorating high schools that uh, need to be tended to. Something needs to be done in these schools in coming years. And there was a facilities referendum in the spring that failed miserably, it's similar to what you described, the 70-30. It failed by a 70 to 30. And all that has um, it's going to be ongoing turmoil. The superintendent of schools who, who had led that charge has now resigned. He, he's, he's retired. He, he's gone now at, uh, uh, as of January. So uh, the, a new school board's been elected. So it's going to have to be a totally new approach. And uh, it's, it's going to be an interesting development because it's not going to get any easier. Erica, how about referendums around the state and around you know the central part of the state? Were they su- more successful this year than usual or less successful? They were actually less successful this year um, than they had been in the past. It's been interesting um, to kind of see what trajectory referendums take in this like post-COVID world. <clears throat> we had been seeing more referendums before the pandemic, more referendums come on the ballot and passing at higher rates that really all kind of paused um, during COVID. You know, last year, we only saw um, like three referendums on the ballot. Um, So this was kind of the first year we saw like a return to form as far as numbers go. But actually in November, this was the lowest passing rate for referendums um, since like 2014. Hmm. So schools had a tougher time getting referendums passed this year. Um, We did have one pass here in central Indiana, Westfield, Washington schools. They were renewing an operating referendum that passed pretty easily. Um, but this, we're seeing a lot more, actually, the last maybe um, like four or five years of the strategy you were talking about of saying, you know, we actually need to pass a referendum to increase teacher pay and just to maintain kind of what we've been doing. Um, so that's actually been in gaining steam as schools have kind of felt the pressure, have not felt like state funding has kept up and they've turned to voters to fund things that we normally wouldn't think of uh, for referendums like teacher pay, like, uh, you know, keeping class sizes reasonable, maintaining current programming. I'm wondering, do you remember the proposal that legislators considered that would have given some of the referendum dollars to charter schools? Erica, did that go anywhere? So it is. They passed um, uh, making it um, a law, making it an option, saying like you can, um, you know, share referendum dollars with charter schools. I think they would still like to see that become mandatory. Um, it's something that you know we're seeing Indianapolis Public Schools is weighing right now. They actually voted last year to start um, sharing with the charter schools that they kind of partner with. Um, but they were actually supposed to, their school board was gonna vote on another referendum package uh, to put on the ballot for next year. And all the charter schools in the county kind of banded together, or in the district, I'm sorry, banded together and said, wait, you should be sharing this, you know, this referendum dollars with all of us, not just your partners. Um, so now the IPS board has kind of tabled that way. They think about what they wanna do, because I think they fully expect that legislators will also try and, um, and pass you know, something to make that mandatory in the coming year. You're listening to Noon Edition on WFIU. We are not doing our show live today, so you can't give us a call, but we are talking about stories from the year 2022 and what might be coming up in 2023. We have three guests. Sarah Whitmire and I have three guests here with us. We have Max Jones, the editor of the Tribune Star and Terre Haute since the year 2000, Nikki Kelly, a 
one of the founders of the Indiana Capital Chronicle, and Erica Heron, who's state politics and government reporter for the Indianapolis Star. I I know one of the um, one of the issues that local communities are struggling with is an, having enough affordable housing and enough places just places for people to to live um, around the communities in Bloomington. That's been a major issue for many, many years. And it seems like every year there's a new affordable housing project of some sort um, just that comes online. There was one this year uh, that is going to provide, I think, 48 units that are for people who are in a more of a poverty range, even though in our fine city of Bloomington, there are two huge complexes being built that are mostly going to cater to IU students. So I, I'm, I'd say that as a sort of a, um, a forerunner to a question about affordable housing throughout the state. And Max, you can talk, talk about it in terms of Terre Haute and Vigo County. And then perhaps, you know, what, what can the state do for Nikki and Eric? You can be thinking about this. What, what can or what ha- has the state tried to do to help communities um, with this kind of issue? Max? Well, you know, the housing, the housing issue in a place like Vigo County and Terre Haute tends to be that, um, you know, there certainly is a shortage in some ranges, and that tends to be where the real heavy market pressures are. Uh, there's certainly pr- plenty of high-end if you want that, and there is uh, some on the other end of that doesn't seem to be uh, the major problem is it is in the middle. So that's, I think, probably where the great strain is. There has been a lot of bu- uh, building going on. I don't see housing issues as one of those that are um, are high on the agenda in, in Vigo County right now. That's not to say it won't get there. Uh, but, you know, we always have to kind of remind ourselves that the population is declining in Vigo and, and Terre Haute. Uh, so housing is, is, is looked at a little differently, I think, than what it would be in an area that uh, is seeing uh, population growth and, and, and the strains of that. Just to follow up on Bloomington, part of the housing issue is being driven by places like Catalent and Cook, medical device manufacturer and, and a pharmaceutical company that are hiring and they don't have places for their employees to live. So that's been driving a lot of that here. From the state level, um, Nikki and Erica, was, was there anything in the legislative session that said this is on the radar of our state lawmakers? Absolutely. We had a housing task force, which had not only legislators, but other stakeholders, mayors, county commissioners, things like that, who met numerous times over the year. And while these sort of study committees usually are, I don't know, a little bit phony. They don't really get a lot done. This one was very dedicated. They came out with like 16 recommendations for the session. Um, Some of the ideas, for instance, had to do with whether there's a way for the state to do more covering of the infrastructure costs, like, you know, building out sewers or water lines that often kicks up the cost of, of housing projects. There was a lot of discussion about uh, cities and towns who pass ordinances that add cost to housing. For instance, you know, whether you require garages or whether you require a certain number of parking spaces, things like that, all that adds cost. And so um, those will, will be discussed too. I happened to just look at a, a new statewide poll this morning and in the number they asked what issues were most concerning guess what they the top two were not school education uh number one was reducing health care costs and number two was affordable housing so i think legislators are absolutely going to have to get involved and they're already you know they they got the basis of the information down and have a structure for some discussions for the session while we're with you, Nikki, I want to ask about just the abortion ban and where that stands right now, because it's still on hold from being enforced right now. So I guess if you could explain the latest, but then also talk a little bit about Rokita and Caitlin Bernard and everything that's been happening with that situation. Okay, so yeah, basically, we have two different injunctions uh, against the abortion ban. The first has to do on sort of personal 
liberty rights and um, that has never been dealt with before in our Supreme Court on whether people have sort of certain base privacy rights. Um, I would say that one has maybe a lesser of a chance and it goes before the Indiana Supreme Court for oral arguments January 19th. So at least until then, until they rule, we'll have the injunction in place. So we're operating under our previous abortion rules. Secondly, though, there was another lawsuit filed under the religious freedom uh, rights. Basically, the idea being there are people out there who believe different <clears throat> things in terms of when a life begins and it, based on their own religion. Uh, for example, people who protect, uh, practice Judaism, they believe that uh, you know, first breath is when life begins. So they're being stopped from having the possibility of an abortion if if that would become a need for them. And that's based on let's let's face it, that's based on uh, a Christian view on when life begins. And they've decided in the legislature that it's at conception. So those two are certainly holding right now kind of status quo. Leaders in the legislature have have made clear that they really don't want to do more abortion legislation this year. Now, whether their conservative members will follow along, we'll see. Hmm. But they are fine with just letting that play out in the courts and, and see where we end up first. Uh, mm -hmm. Secondly, as you mentioned, we have a, a, an attorney general who uh, certainly went after Dr. Caitlin Bernard. She was a doctor who provided abortion care to the 10-year-old girl who came from Ohio over the summer. It was a, a national story. She was a couple of days past Ohio's restrictive abortion law. Obviously, she was nine when she was impregnated. She was clearly raped, um, but she could not get an abortion there. So she came here and got it because we had not changed our law yet. And uh, it created a huge issue Todd Rakita went on national television, announced that he was investigating her. There have been lawsuits filed. Um, now, in the most recent lawsuit, a judge actually found that Todd Rakita violated uh, confidentiality rules and irreparably harmed her. So she could mm -hmm. file for defamation, defamation any day now. But in the meantime, there's a complaint before the medical licensing board. So that's now the venue for to decide whether she broke any rules. And just so you know, I, we've covered every bit of that case. The most we can come up with for if, if you follow Attorney General Rakita's arguments is that is whether she, quote, immediately notified authorities. She followed every rule she can. She reported the abortion. She was in contact with Ohio police, where, of course, the conduct happened. She was in contact with DCS here in Indiana, even though they had no actual, you know, I guess, jurisdiction. But he says she waited too long because it was a couple days. Okay. Have, have you all done any reporting just about other doctors and how they feel about performing abortions in the wake of that and also since things are in limbo right now um i mean right now most doctors i think are pretty reticent to talk after seeing what's happening yeah. to dr <laughs> bernard it's definitely cast a bit of a chill and also because the law is paused uh you know it's 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 nothing has changed from from before i mean i think it was only in effect for about five days mm-hmm or it was uh, blocked by the courts. With Rokita, I'm curious, is he at odds with the party right now? In, in your opinion, as somebody who's covering this all the time. what part of the party you're talking about. That's true. Um, um, yeah, maybe you can no, talk I mean, about that, too. We're looking more, at some of these people. Yeah, some of the more conservative members absolutely uh, like him. And, and some of the more, you know, and I'm not even going to say moderate, but just you know, they're not flamethrowers. They're looking more at doing the business than getting the headlines. And they, you know, are not big fans. I wanted to follow up on, you, you mentioned earlier, and I think maybe Erica has, can respond to this a little bit too, but the affordable, you said, I think affordable health care was one of the key issues that is facing the state. Again, I, I want to know if the legislature has any bills percolating or if they did anything in 2022 that would actually address that issue and and 
Yeah. So, Erica, can you address that? Sure. Um, yeah. The yeah. There was um, similarly to the affordable housing. There was a commission that was uh, Governor Holcomb formed last year to look at you know public health. They came out with you know quite a few recommendations. Um, Although they also said so there's a pretty big price tag on that. They were asking originally for, you know, so they needed $240 million more um, for each of the next two years, you know, going forward. And almost immediately, lawmakers had said, ah, we're not going to have, <laughs> we talk about a tight budget, right? Um, so that $1.6 gets eaten up pretty quickly um, when you've got, you know, one agency asking for $240 million more each year. So they've already said they don't intend to fully fund um, kind of those requests. And the Governor Holcomb's administration has already dropped off that first year's request to $120 million, kind of cut that in half. Um, it still remains to be seen how much of that they actually get. You know, legislative leaders, budget writers are saying even in year two, that 200 getting to that 240 million is going to be pretty tight. So um, I think they certainly intend to do something to address it, um, but how much um, and and how how far that goes, I think, is the big question. Max and Terre Haute is healthcare. What kind of issues have have sort of centered on healthcare in the last year? You know, I think in 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 some ways it's very similar to any other community in terms of the concerns about uh, costs and availability and accessibility. But in Vigo County and perhaps in a lot of other of the more rural counties, um, uh, I think the whole idea of maternal health, uh, of mental health, are the uh, growing to be the largest issues uh, that we're seeing uh, percolating up uh, to be much higher on the agenda. So when you say something like health care in a place like Vigo County or even our surrounding counties, the first thing that comes to my mind for me is mental health care. Uh, as being such a major issue, and also maternal health care, child health care, is where some of the, the, the largest concerns would be. Mm-hmm. I know there are also concerns about rural uh, hospitals and whether they're going to be able to to survive in the new economic model that is that are hospitals, that is hospitals. Um, we have uh, IU Health Bloomington Hospital is one-year-old, was one-year-old about – Three weeks ago, Sarah and I had a chance to talk to the the leaders from that hospital in South Central Indiana, Indiana or IU Health, and you know they've had a lot a number of challenges um, in starting a new hospital and starting it when COVID was still going big. So I think with with healthcare issues coming out of COVID, there there's still well obviously there's still concerns because we've got the the triple demic now of COVID, <laughs> influenza, and what's the other one? The R- RSV. RSV. Yeah, is your yeah. hospital overwhelmed, Max? It, it's had it's had yeah. its its moments. Most definitely, right now there's there is some strain, but it kind of goes in waves. Mm-hmm. I I don't want to to attach mental health and the gun issue. Um, I don't want to tether them together, but it does bring up the idea of you know we've talked about the gun licensing. How there is no gun licensing anymore in the state. I think Nikki mentioned that early in the program. Um, I assume that is there any place else that the state legislature might go on gun laws in 2023 to either loosen them more or tighten them up a little bit? Yeah. Nikki? Uh, I haven't heard any of that so far. I think they've gotten most of what they'd like out of that, obviously, but they first eliminated the fees and now they've eliminated the licenses themselves. Um, I'm not sure, frankly, they could get much more out of it. Um, Governor Holcomb, there was a whole lot of discussion at the time about whether he would veto that bill because the state police superintendent and virtually all the law enforcement agencies were completely against it. So I think they might stand pat a little on that one. Okay. Erica, so I want to bring you in on this because school shootings have been one of the key areas that seems to get this issue revved up. Um, School safety in Indiana, what kind of bills were discussed last year about, about making our schools as safe as they could be? 
Um, yeah, most of the conversation last year uh, around schools centered more on, you know, the kind of conversations that were happening inside of buildings. Um, you know, a couple of years ago, they did a lot around, you know, physical school safety, created a new kind of referendum that schools could ask for, you know, to, to do kind of safety related projects. Um, you know, they're every, you, you, I don't know if we did it last year, but there've been a couple of years where they talked about, did they want to make it easier to arm teachers, um, you know, change kind of some of the different um, regulations around that. We didn't do a lot of that last year. Um, you know, a lot of that happened a few years ago, kind of in response to, you know, high profile shooting here um, at a school in central Indiana. Um, I haven't heard, you know, a lot of conversation about that this year. Um, coming up and i think i think it's because um you know it we kind of do that in response when there's an incident um but i would love to see us look kind of more holistically because if you think about the number of kids that are actually impacted by gun violence it's much you know much greater number of kids who are impacted you know uh kind of day-to-day -day, like shootings in their communities rather than school shootings while school shootings are terrible um and we've certainly you know feels like we're seeing more of them they are still you know more infrequent than these kind of day-to-day -day shootings that are happening in a lot of kids neighborhoods um and i think that's probably a more um you know, impacting more kids anyway than than the school shootings that happen in a classroom. Well, I've made this link between um, mental health and these school shootings, and you know what they what they do to, uh, I guess, just to the the emo mental and emotional well being of students. But correct me if I'm wrong, but hasn't that been an issue with some parents as well that that teachers or that that uh, more money for and teaching mental and emotional um, health and support for students is maybe not the direction that, that a group of parents wants Indiana schools to go? Certainly, there is a, a subset of parents who, you know, think that mental health needs to be something that parents deal with, that they, you know, are involved in, and that's kind of their right um, to to manage and to, to deal with on their own how they see fit and not the place of schools. You know, there's a group, um, you know, an attitude, at least from, from some folks, that schools need to, quote unquote, get back to the basics and, you know, do reading, writing, arithmetic, and leave things like you know, mental health, social, emotional wellness, um, you know, sex education, all those kinds of things, you know, to parents to take care of at home um, and don't want to see, you know, schools involved in. Um, they have been trying to pass um, new laws that would require schools to do, um, you know, get parents involved before they um, do any sort of like mental health treatment or referrals with students. Um, you know, some people think that that's right and parents have the right to know. Other people are concerned that, you know, what if that trauma is coming from the home and the parents don't want to get them help? You know, where does that leave a kid kind of caught in the middle? Mm -hmm. um, I do think we'll continue to see conversations about that. Okay. Can you talk about here in MCCSC, Bob? I know last week's school board meeting, a lot of parents showed up to talk about it because we've had a couple incidents recently of guns in schools. Yeah, well, I know, I think I can talk more about the fact that, that there's a new policy that's sort of aimed at bullying, but also primarily aimed at racism in the schools that has been um, forwarded. It's had its first hearing at a school board meeting. And I know a lot of the administrators, a lot of people, um, some people I know with School of Education are very excited about it because it puts a lot of focus on equity and inclusion in the schools that, you know, there's been a lot of talk about it, but this puts it into, um, you know, into policy. And so I, I guess I would sort of change your question a little bit mm -hmm. or change my answer to fit the question I want to be asked, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> if you don't mind. One other piece, just with education, talking, just pivoting a bit to higher ed that you were really involved with this year was a piece about Pamela Witten's first year. And she's the new IU president. Yeah. And she was a guest on our show. She was a guest on our show. And she, she was a great guest. She talked about everything that we wanted her to talk about. I think there... There are, you know, she's different from Michael McRobbie. There is no question that she is a totally different kind of president. Um, she talks about being focused on students. You know, what, what university president isn't focused to some degree on students, but she lives it every day. And she really keeps the focus on the students. And I think some of the faculty maybe are not happy that 
um, the focus isn't as much on you know what they do uh, that's probably mm-hmm. a harsh thing for me to say or harsh way for me to put it but I know you know there have been you know there have been some bumps in the road uh, along the way she's made a lot of changes in the the uh, administration uh, pe- just people changes um, you know it's very early in her time here though to say too much about her you know I don't think she's she has had a bad start at all but I do think that she's there's been some rocky rocky times uh, particularly I mean I can say specifically there was a story that you know we we did a follow-up on the story but it was by a, a law professor that talked about even how she got hired and and was questioning you know the the hiring process mm-hmm. so um, yeah it's not been smooth I mean you look at Purdue where they had Mitch fest I don't believe that <laughs> right. don't believe that IU would be having a, I mean I couldn't imagine having a Michael fest when Michael retired different kind of presidency mm-hmm. but um, along with that can you just talk brief I'm sorry uh, briefly about grad workers because that has been a huge well, story this year yeah the grad workers want to have a union and and the university does not want the grad workers to have a union. They want the grad workers to be happy. Uh, they want the grad workers to get what's coming to them, but they want to stop short of supporting an actual union. And that's been, you know, there have been demonstrations on campus. Uh, we did a show on it. We had a national expert that came on, studies this, and he frankly said, I don't know why, the univers- why Indiana University is so resistant to just recognizing their union, letting them go forward, which was, you know, something that I, I was happy that somebody said that. But the university is not uh, is resisting. They are not interested in actually um, verifying or supporting the idea that their grad workers would have a union because they want to see them as students who act, who are able to actually have a job as well. So, I guess that's what I'd say about that. Thanks. Yeah, sure. So, I want to. I guess I want to move on to a couple of different areas. Uh, we've got about mm, ten minutes to go in the program. I think one one area that I, I want to talk about is just the political divide in the country. And Max, I want to ask you about this first because Vigo County has been the bellwether. You know, it's it's gone back and forth, and whichever way Vigo County goes is the way the presidential election goes. It wasn't the case in the last election. But is Vigo County gone one way or the other? And what what's the what's the mood, what's the attitude there when it comes to this divisiveness? Well, it has certainly changed from what it was at one time. Uh, but those of us who were kind of close to it, uh, living in it, could kind of see that happening uh, probably through the decade before we actually saw it in in, in the balloting. Uh, you know, Obama did win Vigo County in his second in his second run narrowly. But uh, after that, it 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 is uh, certainly swung as red as uh, as red can be, and and we kind of trace that to a, a lot of it has to do with economic factors. It used to be a, a labor stronghold in Vigo County, and that's just not the case. And and even though there may be some labor leaders in Vigo County that would tend to. Uh, promote uh, the Democratic Party and and its causes. That's not the way with the rank and file, uh, and it is it is so clearly gone the other direction, uh, and that I think is what's driven the shift in Vigo County. It, it's very difficult for any Democrat to get elected uh, in Vigo County right now, with a couple exceptions, uh, and and you know there there will be those through the years, but right now you see, you know twenty years ago you just, you could put a potted plant on a on a Democrat ballot, and they win in Vigo County. Now it's almost the opposite case um, that you're going to start seeing those uh, sorts of uh, cases. And the fact that uh, the biggest fights in Vigo County are now are within the Republican Party. They're trying to figure out how to handle the power they have now uh, and, and, and get their bearings. So it's it's sort of entertaining and, and to watch uh, how things have shift, shifted so drastically. I refuse to call any of our Democratic candidates pot of plants. <clears throat> However, I think that's fabulous. Any, <laughs> I'm steal that. <laughs> Democrat Democrats win everything in Monroe County. Continue to win everything in Monroe County, and it's going to be that way. I think in the foreseeable future. Not the same in the state legislature. Um, Erica, Nikki, the state legislature this year, 
Uh, in the election this year, I believe it, it, there's maybe only one or two seats that flipped. Is that right? Maybe the Senate went one more Republican. Does that sound right? Yeah, um, I think the House um, gained a Democrat, but then the Senate lost a Democrat. So, you know, overall, the legislature is virtually the same, which I think some people were shocked at given what we thought was going to be, we thought abortion was maybe going to be a more potent, um, you know, topic or driver in the election than it was. Um, obviously, Indiana is still, you know, very, very Republican. We could see that, I think, the biggest way in the statewide Secretary of State's race, because in that race, you had an absolutely qualified eloquent good female candidate on the democrat side you had a republican who had all kinds of baggage he was you know fired at least once maybe twice from the very office he was trying to take over you know he had issues with voting issues with his veteran status uh, his military history and yet he still just wiped the floor with her and so that tells you a little bit about the likelihood of statewide wins for the Democrats. Erica, when you look at the at the legislature, you know, it is a supermajority in both the House and the Senate for the Republicans. But is it how much power, how much how much in not power, but how much input do you think that Democrats can have in a legislative session when they're so um, outnumbered? Um, I mean, we have seen them, you know, over the last couple of years, uh, you know, really struggle to move the needle on a lot of issues um, that are important to them. It, you know, often comes down to, you know, the opposing kind of factions within the Republican Party are really what shape, um, you know, the legislation that ends up getting passed. It's it's become more about, you know, the the divide, um, you know, within the Republican Party um, than it has been about the Democrats. So, um, you know, I, they'll, of course, be proposing their alternatives um, to, you know, what the supermajority proposes. But I, I don't think that we'll see a lot of movement on those issues. Their bills don't get heard very often. Um, the supermajority just has you know, total control right now. So it's more about, you know, uh, leadership, I think, trying to wrangle, you know, members at opposing ends of their own party. Nikki, can you give us the inside scoop on Governor Holcomb? And is he on the outs with the party in a lot of ways because of his response to COVID? And how might that affect what happen what he does next? Um, you know, I think there are there is a certain faction of the Republican Party that maybe leans a little more libertarian that are still pretty mad at him over COVID. But let, let's not be let's not kid ourselves. He's still a very popular um, guy. Every, you know, poll I see, he's very popular. Maybe he's lost a few points here and there. Um, one thing he did to kind of tick off the Republican base last last year, this year, was to veto a bill that banned um, transgender girls from participating in K-12 sports. That sort of definitely hit some of the party members wrong. So, uh, I mean, he might have trouble, honestly, in a, in a primary, and that might decide whether he wants to run for something else like Senate, which we'll find out hopefully you know early next year but right now he i think we all sat down with him recently various reporters and he is not giving any indication on his plans for the future he's <laughs> kind of keeping it close to the best we only have three minutes to go so i want to give each of you a chance to tell me what's the big issue that you're going to be looking at for next year max well, um, certainly we've got a municipal election coming up. Uh, I, I don't anticipate that that's going to be a huge story. I, I think we all expect uh, our mayor, Duke Bennett, to run for a, a fifth term. Uh, and if he does so, I would, I would, I would think that he should have a, a pretty clear shot at, at winning that term. So, so let, to me, I think the biggest story that we'll be following is what's happening in higher education at Indiana State University. They're, they're in a real challenging period right now. And um, there's a lot of people concerned about how they're going to work their way through this. There's probably going to be some major cuts uh, at the university, and uh, uh, with their enrollment declining the way it is, it just poses a whole a whole range of challenges. So that I think will be one of the big stories of the year. Okay, Nikki. 
Well, obviously, whenever you've got a state budget on tap, that's going to be, you know, a, a big part of what we watch um, in terms of where the money goes for K-12, for higher ed, for other state agencies. Um, some other smaller issues that might get some attention um, are maybe the idea of Internet gaming through our casinos or lottery. Um, there are going to be a ton of health care bills both pricing in hospitals and mental health aid and governor's public health commission. And then the whole worker shortage idea and how we, the Republicans in the house are, are talking about wanting to quote, reinvent high school um, so that the kids are more ready for jobs in case they don't want to go to further education. So that would be a big one to watch. And Erica, last minute. Yeah, I'm also going to be watching what happens with this worker shortage issue. And really, um, I'm curious to see if leadership at the state house can kind of keep on message and keep their members focused on solving some of these, uh, you know, quality of place, quality of life, affordable housing, you know, all of these kind of raft of issues that are connected to solving our workforce shortage, or if we get kind of bogged down in some more of these social issues um, and the kind of culture war issues again this session. All right, we really haven't talked about inflation this hour. And you know, the one story that I thought three or four years ago was gonna be the story of the decade was climate change and dealing with that issue. We haven't really gotten to that either, but we are out of time. I wanna thank all three guests, Max Jones from the Terre Haute Tribune Star, Nikki Kelly from Indiana Capital, Capital Chronicle, and Erica Heron from the Indianapolis Star. For Sarah Whitmire, I'm Bob Zaltzberg. I also want to thank Mike Pashkash, our engineer, and Nathan Moore, our producer. Happy holidays. Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville, fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, providing financial support to the community for 55 years, promoting healthier lives and the advancement of future health care in our region, working together for a healthier tomorrow. More at bloomhf.org. And from Estate and Downsizing Specialists, LLC, offering complete turnkey services for estate and downsizing clients, from initial consultation through home cleanout to final real estate and personal property sales. More at edsindiana.com.